This is a recording from a sermon from Light Church in San Diego, California. For more information, please visit lightsandiego.com. fun to be with you. Thanks, Benji and Jen, and we've gotten to know Benji a little bit uh, over the last couple years, and uh, getting to know Jen a little bit, and got to hang out with their kids Friday night. That was fun over at uh, uh, Mark's church, and it was great. We're grandparents now. Debbie and I have been married 43 years, and we have four grandkids. My oldest granddaughter FaceTimed me the other day, and she said, Grandpa, is Jesus God's brother? I said, well, actually, Avery, Jesus is God's son. So she said, thanks, and took off, and her mom came on, and she said, that's what I told her, but she said, I'm calling Grandpa. He's the expert in our family. <laughs> so got something going on, uh, Jen. At least my granddaughter thinks I'm the expert in the family. So I want to talk to you tonight about um, what I think is a really important message um, I just, I don't know about you, but I get heartbroken every time I open my iPad or iPhone up and flick to the newspaper or whether it's Fox or CNN or just random news and see the brokenness in our world. Um, I was just in um, Austin, Texas the other day. Remember the guy who was sending bombs randomly and blowing up people, this Corbett kid. So it was very interesting. He, um, the pastor was telling me that across the street from their church, uh, all of a sudden, all of these police cars descended on this hotel. And uh, that's when he spotted them and took off. And when they cornered him, he blew himself up. And what I thought was interesting about that story is that was the front page headlines for weeks. This random bomber um, killed multiple people in Austin, Texas. They knew who it was. The day after he took his own life, um, his story went off the front page and got buried somewhere. I mean, it's just the world we live in. I mean, the world we live in is sensationalized to the place that pain and the aberration of life is front page news, but the pain of a family that's dealing with the loss of a son who was isolated and broken in his own world and only knew how to express himself through injuring other people was a very sad state of affairs. But even more sad than that is a world who could care less after it's not front page news. I think that's the culture that gets developed in a world that is almost emotionless from the pain that people experience. And so in my own journey, and I've been in the ministry for a number of years, but I love reading the Gospels and finding stories that I help interpret what's happening in our world. And for me, help interpret what's happening in my own life and how I can relate to, to the brokenness of our world. Mark is uh, one of the writers of the Gospel. Uh, I think it's only 16 chapters that he writes. 
And all of his book is about stories about Jesus. It starts with his baptism and ends after his resurrection when he's ascended. So there's no genealogy. There's no birth stuff. There's um, nothing after the ascension about the early church. It's only this section. And he tells multiple stories. And to me, they have similar themes. And the themes are watching Jesus encounter people, some Jews, some not Jews, and how Jesus reacted to them as someone on a mission. Jesus felt like his life, I mean, imagine he only had, some say, we say three years. His public ministry started at 30. He died at 33. But some people said he only had about 18 to 24 months with his disciples to pour his life into it. What I would love to say to you tonight is he didn't spend that time building an organization. He spent that time building disciples, pouring his life into other people, sharing with them values that would supersede any institution and organization. And um, so I don't come to you tonight as, as the representative of an organization. I'm coming to you tonight as a follower of Jesus Christ. Because regardless of what my role is, every day I wake up with some of the same fears, some of the same challenges, some of the same history that you have. Um, and I encounter people who um, have had that same kind of brokenness too. I was on an airplane recently and uh, flew from Rhineland, uh, excuse me, Chicago to Rhinelander, Wisconsin, and I was in the front seat. It's one of those airplanes where everybody's in first class. I don't know if you've ever been on one of those before, but it's like 14 people on the plane, and, and there's a small prop plane. And so the flight attendant said, we're not serving any drinks because the flight's so short. And I thought, well, okay. And uh, I was really glad she said that later when the passenger sitting beside me came in. He's 40 years old, uh, drunk, belligerent, vulgar, uh, arrogant, mean, and I was thinking at this point when he's saying all this stuff, I'm really glad they're not serving any alcohol because he doesn't need any more alcohol. Now, by the end of the plane ride, I actually was hoping they'd had something for me to calm my nerves with, with not going overboard with sitting beside this guy because he just, I had never been beside anybody like that in my life. And about halfway through the flight, he grabs his phone and he says, Glenn, I want to show, I want to introduce you to my girlfriend's. And, uh, you know, I'm just listening. He pulls out his iPhone. He said, this is my Italian girlfriend. And so he starts going through all these girls. And he said, I meet them all at a bar in New Jersey. He said, there's 10 girls to every guy. And if you give me your phone number and you're ever in New Jersey, you can come and I'll take you to that bar. So I pulled out my iPhone. I pulled up a picture of Debbie. And I said, this is my wife. We've been married 43 years. He, this is no kidding. He grabs my phone, looks at her, and she goes, he goes, Wow, she's cute. He said, could I have her phone number? I'm going, this guy is unbelievable. If he wasn't that much bigger than I was, I think I'd punch him out. A few minutes later, he turns to me and he said, this is the worst day of my life. I thought to myself, well, you've made it pretty close to the worst day of my life, or at least the worst <laughs> flight I've ever had. But go ahead, humor me, tell me why it's the worst day of your life. He said, this morning at 8 o'clock, I got a call that my 62-year-old dad had a heart attack in the middle of the night and died. And um, we weren't close at all. I have a lot of regrets. So I'm having to fly back to prepare for his funeral because there's no one else. And when I left Rhinelander, I left a divorced wife and a kid that I don't support. And so nothing back there that awaits me in Rhinelander is good news. Something clicked for me. Because I went from a guy who was frustrated by a drunk guy sitting beside me who was vulgar and belligerent 
to realizing this guy was facing a lot of internal pain. And so we just began to talk. I began to unpack for him his relationship with his dad and what went wrong and, and how he could make the... I basically said, you know, um, all, cha- all books have chapters and you're going to write a new chapter in your book. And the first 10 chapters of your life could be miserable, could be filled with lots of regrets. But that doesn't mean the last 10 chapters of your book have to be that way. Start a new chapter. So we're talking through this, and he said, what do you do for a living? You know, I thought I'd say, well, I'm the CEO of a nonprofit corporation, and uh, I, it's a global, by the way. But um, before I could get it out, he said, are you a pastor? And I tried to hem-haw around a little bit because I didn't know how drunk he still was. Um, and finally, I admitted to it, and he said, thank you. He said, um, I've needed the counsel you've given me. And so he's going off the airplane. He gets a phone call from somebody and he said, it's been the worst day of my life, but I met a pastor and I have some hope for the future. And I thought to myself, um, I wasn't planning on that. I didn't assign my seat to sit beside him, but I do believe this about your life. And I believe it about mine. We're on divine assignment and we will encounter people at a grocery store, at a restaurant, Um, where we work, where we live. And their life will often be filled with a broken story. We won't know what caused it. We may only see the results of it. Jesus, in one of the stories Mark tells, in fact, he tells story after story of Jesus encountering broken people. Remember the, uh, I'm going to focus tonight on the one in Mark 2, though it's not the, it's not the passage that you have on the, on the outline tonight. But all three of the stories I'll reference tonight have to do with Jesus encountering. The one I was going to talk to you about tonight, and, and I'll reference it, is the one in Mark um, 5 where Jesus encounters a demon-possessed guy. He's been living in the cemetery. Nobody can control him. They try to chain him. Uh, he's constantly... Um, People are living in fear of him because they can't control him. He's cutting himself. He's living a most miserable existence. He's isolated from everybody. And Jesus encounters him when he steps out of a boat and he delivers him from a spiritual bondage. And all of a sudden, I love Mark's account. It says this guy's sitting there dressed and in his right mind. And the people in the city were afraid. Can you imagine... They're not, they have a different fear, but they fear more him being well. They had gotten used to him being dysfunctional. They got so frustrated with Jesus, they asked him to leave, and Jesus does. We'll finish that story before we end. I want to tell you a story that a lot of you remember. It's in Mark chapter 2. Let me tell you how Mark frames this story. He said, Jesus was coming home, and people heard he was coming home, And um, so they crowded into his house, and people couldn't even get in. Some men heard he was going to be there, brought a paralyzed man, couldn't get him in the front door, cut a roof, cut a hole in the roof, lowered him down. So imagine Jesus is teaching these people that are crowded in, in his living room, and all of a sudden the roof starts coming apart, and they lower this man down. Now, if you know, have ever heard of that story, 
The story has a couple of very familiar passages. One, that they cut through the roof, and two, that Jesus heals this paralyzed man. Let me tell you something I've never saw before a year ago, and it changed my perspective. Because I think Mark, as well as the other writers, give us insights into the character of Jesus that should say something to us about how we interact with others that we don't catch on the first read. My first read is some people ruined Jesus' roof. They lowered him down, got everybody's attention. The religious leaders were there trying to trap Jesus with something. I remember that part of the story. And I remember Jesus healing him and the guy leaving. What I didn't remember was what I had discovered a year ago when Jesus, when he looked at the man. Now, this is what Mark would have captured in one word. He would have framed it in another phrase by saying he was brought by some men, which in absence of of saying he was brought by family, brought by friends, he was brought by some men. Which is no strange uh, thing then that Jesus would look at him and say to him something he'd never said before and never said since. He looked at the young man and he called him son. Because in my opinion, we see the man paralyzed and we do that in life. We see the obvious brokenness in people's lives. We see the stuff that's not working. We see the stuff that we think is causing them the most pain. Jesus saw something that no one else really would have known except that God revealed it to Jesus that he had broken relationships. That somehow this paralysis had distanced him from his family. Maybe they got tired of caring for him. I don't know. Maybe his parents were divorced. I don't know what caused the brokenness, but it is interesting. The one person that could heal him shows up in town and his family isn't there. Neither are his friends, just some men. There were a group of people during that day called the Essenes and their nonprofit ministry was to pick people up and help them, help widows, help orphans, help uh, paralyzed people. So it's Very likely the Essenes could have been the men who brought him to Jesus. But he begins with the word son. He doesn't start by healing him. We tend to start when we're ministering to people by addressing the most obvious thing of people's brokenness. Jesus starts with what is not obvious, but Jesus knows this. If I heal his legs, he's still going to be a broken man. Because his heart's going to be broken. I talked to a guy after the service, after the first service tonight, and he told me about a horrific um, relationship um, breach in his life. And we just sat and we prayed down front, and I, I can't imagine the pain he's going through. I also can't imagine the fact that God may be redirecting his life in a way that will cause him to find his purposes and plans in a way he never thought were possible. This is what Paul said. Paul said, you know what? I serve a God who closes door and opens doors, and I'm not going to try to open the doors God closes. They may create great pain. They may create great consternation. What I said to him tonight was, spiritually, we can get healed. Because Jesus would say a second thing to this man. He said, your sins are forgiven. In other words, this man's relationship with God is not a problem. Most people would have seen this man paralyzed and said, oh, something's wrong with him. He's done something wrong or his parents. He's under a curse. And Jesus set that record as straight to begin with. Do you know how easy it is? In fact, Mark tells about the religious people being 
at this house arguing with Jesus of whether he could forgive this man's sins or not. Wouldn't you think that if they are people who followed God, they would be happy this man's sins are forgiven? Wouldn't they be happy this man got healed? Wouldn't they be happy his relationship with his family could be being restored? In fact, they stuck on the one thing that religion always sticks on is, I'm better than you, so I'm going to point out where you have fallen short. So they argue with Jesus that he doesn't have the authority. So I love what Jesus does. He turns the table on him. He said, well, if I don't have the authority to forgive sins, then I guess I wouldn't have the authority over sickness. So I'm going to heal him. And then you have to decide if I have authority over sin and or sickness. I just love the way he turns the table and puts it back on them. Life is like that. We encounter people on a regular basis who we see the obvious. What we don't see is the not so obvious. And yet Jesus says to the Apostle Paul, I have committed that you would be whole body, soul, and spirit. And sometimes the church is only concerned about people's spiritual condition where it's very clear in the story that we have a God who's concerned about our emotions, concerned about our Um, the brokenness inside of us, which is why, by the way, God's reference to us is that he's our father. I mean, imagine all of the people who have broken family relationship. God begins this whole story by saying, I'm your father. This incredible opportunity to heal whatever may be broken in challenging relationships. Debbie and I moved to Atlanta, Georgia a couple years ago, and and, uh, on the day we were closing out our house, we wanted to drive by the house just to see it for one last time, and there were two sheriffs sitting in our driveway, and I'm going, Debbie, that's not good news. And I pull up, and the sheriff gets out, and he said, can I help you? And I said, yeah, we're buying this house today. He said, well, you may want to call the seller because we got two teenagers sitting inside. They broke into your house. They're smoking marijuana, and um, we're going to have to arrest them. I'm going, oh, great. What I didn't know then was that I would find out later after we closed that the two teenagers who broke into our house and were smoking marijuana lived beside us. That's one thing to have your house broken into. It's another thing to have your house broken into by your neighbors. So we're li- we live at the end of a cul-de-sac, so every time I leave my house, I drive right by their house. And I've been waving at them and, and throwing my hands up. I've talked to their dad at the mailbox. I've never told them once that I know they broke into my house. I just think it's fun for them to have conversations between them, say, do you think he knows? If he knows, why is he so nice to us? I was at a convenience store and I heard someone saying, hey, neighbor. And I looked up and it was one of these kids. They were driving their car and they were getting gas. And so I think it's funny. I was driving down the road and one of them was broken on the side of the road or their car was sitting on the side of the road. And I pulled off and I said, hey, do you have, need some help? He said, yeah, I've got something wrong with my car. And I said, well, you know, I said, I, that's what I said to him. I just live right. He said, no, I know who you are. I said, well, I'll drive you to your house and pick up your stuff and bring your back here. He said, great. So I went and got him back and then left. And so every time I see them, I, I throw my hands up. Because one day the conversation is going to come up. You knew. And why were you so nice to us? My wonderful response to that is, you know, I had somebody that I violated in a relationship with. 
and they loved me right through it. His name is Jesus. I wasn't faithful to him, but he was faithful to me. I was unmerciful, and he was merciful. I didn't show grace, I showed judgment, but he showed grace to me. So today I have a relationship with him, and can I introduce? I'm waiting for that day. It's going to be a fun day. Now, in the meantime, I have five cameras and two security systems, and um, I'm helping the Lord um, in this situation. But I wonder tonight, if it doesn't work in my neighborhood, does the gospel work? If it doesn't work when I encounter brokenness, does it work maybe when I don't see a person get off their mat? What if a person's been rejected? I pray for them about healing in a relationship and, and they continue to be rejected. Is it... Is it possible that God really didn't hear my prayer? It's a great story in the Old Testament about a woman named Leah who had a sister named Rachel. Leah was not very pretty. Her sister Rachel was beautiful. All the guys wanted to date her. All the guys wanted to take her to the prom. All the guys wanted to marry her. Jacob, who is this, this is Abraham's lineage now, right? This is the promise of Israel getting ready to take place. This is, this is Abraham, Isaac. This is the kid who is the son of the one laid on the altar. This is the, this is the son of promise. And so he sees this beautiful girl and he says to her, Dad, what can I do to have your daughter's hand in marriage, and father said, work for me for seven years. He does. At the end of that seven years, the father tricks him and gives him Leah instead of Rachel. Jacob is furious. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but I'm wondering how Leah felt. Genesis tells us, Genesis said that God saw that she was unloved and he heard her prayer. Now, I, I find this really interesting because the story doesn't conclude with Leah. She has a bunch of kids. She stays married to Jacob. I'm sure it was very obvious that Rachel was his preference. Rachel does end up giving him Benjamin and Joseph, two very favored. Remember, remember the favored sons of, of Jacob? Joseph, he's the guy that got the multicolored coat. He wasn't the son of Leah. He was the son of Rachel. So he favored him because he loved Rachel. But what I want us to see is a world that exists beyond the world we see. That's the world I'm inviting you in tonight. It's the world that Mark allowed us to step into. And when Mark, when Jesus heals the guy with being demon-possessed, you would think, wow, now it's time to Jesus to go on tour and write a book and get lots of followers. Instead, he gets back in the boat because the people tell him to leave, and he leaves. What's even more interesting is the guy that he healed and delivered wanted to come with him, and Jesus said, no, you just need to stay and tell your story. Mark finishes the story several chapters later when Jesus comes back to the very region in Syria, I might add, in the Decapolis, where the man has went to these ten cities and told his story in his language, in his culture. And I think this is pretty cool, Benji, that Jesus literally said to this man, you can tell your story better than I can. 
when they hear you tell your story, look what they've done to me. They've rejected me. But when they hear you tell your story, they'll believe my story. So after a couple of years, Jesus comes back and he comes to the same area where he was rejected. And I love this. The Bible said there are thousands waiting for him. And they beg him to stay for days and teach them and their children. Why? Because one person whose life was changed told his story in their culture and in their language. And now they're ready to accept Jesus. That's your story. Oftentimes the world rejects the picture of the church as an institution. But what the world is looking for is people they know whose lives have been transformed. Which is why Jesus, by the way, told the guy in Mark 2 when he called him son, he forgave his sins, and he healed him. Jesus' last instructions were to him, I love this, go home. Whatever's been broken, go home there's going to be a reconciliation. I love those kinds of stories. God takes that brokenness. And in Leah's story, we often think that because we don't see a miracle happen in our lifetime and because we pray and we don't see immediate results, that somehow God didn't hear our prayer. But the Bible says God always hears the cry of those who pray to him. Remember the story in Egypt? The Israelites prayed for 400 years and God said to Moses, I've heard their prayer. I'm concerned about their suffering. I'm going to go rescue them. Why does God wait 400 years? I don't know. Why did God allow the early church to suffer at the hands in the Roman Colosseum for 400 years? I don't know. But what I do know is at one point, Constantine, the Roman emperor, got saved. Made Christianity the state religion of Rome. And if you go to the Colosseum today, the very place for 400 years where, church, where Christians were martyred, there's a cross hung by an emperor of Rome that began to follow Christ. Leah, by the way, her story doesn't show up till the book of Matthew in the New Testament because she had a bunch of kids, but it didn't seem, they didn't obviously seem to be Jacob's favorites but they were God's because God picked one of them named Judah to be of the lineage of Jesus. So Jesus would say to you and I tonight, when I write your story, I'm going to write your story. My purposes and plans will be fulfilled in your life if you submit yourself to me, even if you never see them in your lifetime. Can you imagine the missionaries? I love this story. The missionaries in China... Communism took over and the missionaries were kicked out. Bibles became illegal. Churches were shut down and pastors were arrested. Now, if you're a missionary or let's say a Foursquare has a missions organization and you're thinking, that's not a good strategy. I mean, God, what are you doing? You're shutting down a nation. You're sending our missionaries home. You're outlawing the Bible. I hear people today talk about persecution around the world. And we forget that in Jesus' first sermon, he goes, Blessed are those that are what? Persecuted for my sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In fact, what, what God is saying to all of us tonight is, You have no idea what I'm doing through persecution. Is it okay for you to pray against persecution? Absolutely. But you don't always know what God's accomplishing through persecution. In China, it drove the church underground. And today, the fastest growing church in the world is in China. 
And your Foursquare movement has 15,000 churches there. We can't tell you where they're all at because they can't even today be public with the government, even though I went over with Franklin Graham and met all of the so-called government religious leaders. There's movements of tens of thousands of of churches and millions of believers. In fact, they say there's more believers in China than in any nation in the world. How could that be? How could God take a strategy where man said, we're going to snuff out the gospel and actually God say, no, I'm going to take your strategy and seed the gospel. Because the people that are going to be serious and willing to give their life for it, it's through the blood of the martyrs Benji talked about this bread and juice, and we do that so often we forget about it, but it was the final lesson Jesus said. He said, don't ever forget this lesson. Whatever you do, don't forget this one. That what you have will be because of my death. Charismatics and Christians like to celebrate the resurrection. And I think that's great. I love, Easter's our biggest Sunday usually in the church and the whole year. But sometimes I think we forget the cost of the resurrection was the cross. That's what everything was built on. When Jesus looks at your brokenness and says, I'm going to heal you, what he begins to look at is the blood of Christ. Because Isaiah would prophesy hundreds of years before Jesus came that he will be bruised for your iniquities. The payment of your sin is on him. The brokenness of your life, that's why Benji said today, which I love, this, this symbol represents a whole gospel, not just the forgiveness of a sin, but the brokenness of relationships, the violation that people in this room have suffered at the hands of other people. Sometimes people very close to you. And Jesus said, I'm going to suffer so that you can find healing. And that's my message to you tonight. And it's not just a sermon. It, it shows up in the life of Christ. He didn't just preach it. He lived it. When he saw people broken, he wasn't just concerned about them getting healed. He was concerned about their heart being broken. If your heart's broken tonight, if somebody's ripped it, played with it, violated it, I'm here to tell you tonight, Jesus already knows your pain. And he's actually already paid the price. You have to trust him with your pain. Leah trusted God with her pain. But the interesting thing is she never saw the results of her trust in her lifetime. But one of the biggest miracles Jesus or God ever did that was prophesied that Jesus would be from the lion of the tribe of Judah. That the birth of a son born in pain would give birth to the greatest miracle story in the history of man. I don't know what will get birthed out of your pain. But what I know is this, is that if you cry out to God, he hears you. The last thing I would like to say tonight is, I don't think I'm just healed to be healed. I don't think I'm just, God just mends me to be mended so that I walk around whole. I mean, God, that, 
That's a big part of God's plan, but he doesn't leave me as a forgiven person just to be able to gloat in my forgiveness. He doesn't leave me with a person who learns to guard their heart and not let people violate that again just so that I can be a healthy person. Instead, what he's done is, first of all, I care enough about you to do it in you. But secondly, what I want to do is I want to commission you to go help other people who are still trapped. Go tell your story. They'll believe you. See, I'd like to be able to stick the Bible in somebody's face and say, read this. And God said, no. Tell them your story. He calls us messengers. How will people ever get saved unless somebody tells them? And how will somebody tell them unless they are sent? If you've been forgiven, you're actually on a mission. And the mission is just to tell your story. That's what the disciples did. All we know is this is what he did for me. And let God do the rest. Let me ask you to bow your head tonight and ask you a quick question. I wonder if there's anybody here that would just say, you know, Glenn, I'm still walking through a lot of brokenness in my life. Lots of pain. And I know I'm called to be a messenger of his healing, but first of all, I just need, I need a fresh new touch from Jesus tonight. Anybody here? You just need healing from Jesus tonight. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Thank you. Thank you for your transparency. Thank you for your honesty. Hemi would say tonight that you heard the Lord say to you tonight, you have a message. Be ready to share it. I don't, I'm not encouraging you to grab a bunch of tracks and cover blocks in your neighborhood. If that's what God tells you to do, fine. I'm just saying be open. When God brings somebody broken across your path, just tell them that there's help available for them. Benji and I met a young girl that served at a restaurant in town. Been in a horrible motorcycle accident. And God just, it was a divine appointment. Very vulnerable young lady and we had a chance to say somebody cares about you. Jesus cares about you. Here's a church that can be a part of your family. If you're here tonight and would just say, Glenn, I've been um, challenged tonight to be more open to sharing my story with others and I want to acknowledge for God that he's still writing my story. If that's you tonight, would you just lift your hand? I, I've I got a story God's still working on and I'm willing to share it. Jesus, thank you for Benji and Jen and their kids and the leadership here and Every single person that walked through these doors that you planted a seed with tonight. God, you want us to regain our voice. The world tends to silence our voice, but 
you want us, you want to give us our voice again. And that's my prayer for this church, and it's my prayer for every single person that no matter what they've been through, no matter who's hurt them, that they'll find their story again. In Jesus' name.